All right, we're going to jump in. We're going to read just uh, four verses together out of John 17. I'll talk about the context of this in a moment. But this is what it says, John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. This is Jesus speaking, and it's also Jesus praying. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father. And he's praying right now these words. I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples whom he was praying for, but I ask for all of those who will believe in me through their word. That's all of us. So here he is praying for every one of us. I'm not praying just for the disciples, but I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their word, that they might be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they might also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they might be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them even as you have loved me. That's a good word right there. Why don't we open in prayer and then uh, we'll jump in. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word that's written for us, just available, your scriptures to read every day. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have access to your word and access to faith communities like this, for the freedoms that we have in this country. We thank you most of all for your presence, for your spirit living inside of us and around us and guiding us, that you're a present God. And so we invite you right now that, that you would speak to us intimately in our hearts as individuals and as a community, that we would respond to you in a reasonable and appropriate way. We would respond to your truth. We would allow your word to, to change us and to transform us and that you would make us to be the people that you desire that we would be together in community. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. So there was this uh, relatively unknown politician in the year 1858. He had been, a, a, I think, a congressman for a few years. Previously, he had practiced law. He went on to become a congressman, and then he left Congress to go back to his law practice and just continue doing, uh, you know, the work of a lawyer. And then in the year 1858, he decided, you know what, I need to get back into the political game because what I'm doing is not affecting change enough. I see that our country is going down a wrong road. And so he ran for the, the Senate seat in the state of Illinois. And then in the year 1858, he wrote this speech that he reviewed with his friends before he gave it at the state capitol. And the title of the speech was, A House Divided. And he showed this speech to his law partner, and he said, will you critique this for me? I want to make sure that the people really hear what I'm going to say. And his partner said, you know what? I think that this is too radical. You should change the wording in your speech because people are really not going to dig this thing. And he said, the proposition that I'm speaking of is indisputably true, Therefore, I will keep the speech as written. Indisputably true. Sounds like something that honest Abe would say. And so he went on to, uh, in, a, in an attempt to gain the seat of the senator, he went on to, to speak this message called The House Divided, quoting Jesus himself, speaking 
specifically about the issue of slavery in our nation. And his partner was correct in the fact that people didn't take too well to that speech that day. They didn't really appreciate the tone. And he was not elected to the Senate. Somebody else went on to win the Senate seat. But it was just two years later that Abraham Lincoln, just two years later, was elected president of the United States of America. And he would go on to lead our nation through what probably has been the most divisive, disunifying event in our country's history, the Civil War. And it was all around this issue of slavery. He stood on this position that unless we can find unity on this issue, then this nation that we call the United States of America is gonna be anything but united. And so, of course, we all know that Abraham Lincoln uh, led uh, our country through this season where we abolished slavery. But the truth of the matter is, as we've all been experiencing, especially the last 12 months to 18 months, that there are issues, uh, numerous issues, including the issue of race that we're still dealing with today that are threatening to, to disunify and divide us all the time. And it's not just issues of race that we're facing. There's, there's all kinds of other political issues. There's issues of gender. There's issues of, of even age. There's, there's fi uh, financial things that are, that are working to get in between us. You know as well as I do that, that we are facing an attack almost every day that something or someone or somebody or the world is trying to tear people apart. You've probably felt it in your family. You may have, if you've been married for any amount of time longer than your honeymoon, have felt this, this thing that's trying to rip your marriage apart. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's an attack against unity going on in our individual worlds, in our, in our cultural world, and it's, it's, it's crazy, it's, it's intense, it's, it's the work of the enemy. Because the enemy knows that if he can... Uh, get disunity to rule and chaos to rule amongst us, then God's blessing will not be upon us and that we'll be separated from one another. You know, I grew up playing sports and I'll just be honest with you, I was kind of a trash talker. Barn hurts. <laughs> and so this is what you do. You, 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 you'll talk trash to somebody and your hope is that you get inside their head. But what I remember growing up is it was always better when they started getting mad at each other instead of you just t talking trash to the other team, but you knew that you won when the other team started bickering and fighting with one another because then it's like, okay, it, they're gonna crumble from the inside and, and so I got a step ahead. And that, because that's, that's a primary form of attack is to create disunity in your opponent. And it's happening in almost every area of our life, all the areas that matter. If you run a business and all of your employees are mad at each other and mad at you and there's disunity in your business, it's not gonna be successful. If in your family there's bickering and there's anger and there's bitterness and unresolved issues that go year after year, it's going to reach a point and if the enemy has his way to the end, it's gonna create this thing called divorce, separation, the ultimate sign in the marriage world of disunity. I think that Jesus knew that unity 
is amongst the most important things in all of those areas of our life, but in particular, in the faith. This is why here in John 17, we have these amazing words. And what you'll find if you were to read a few chapters back is from the chapters of John 13 to the beginning of, well, really, John 17 is like the last uh, 12 hours John 18, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday, and he walks in as this this glorious uh, king, this ruler, and the people all recognize him that way. But then on Thursday night, he finds himself uh, joining with his disciples in the upper room for the what we know as the, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And so if you were to read in John 13, He's in the upper room. He, he's sharing a meal with his disciples. He gets on his hands and his knees and he starts washing their feet and he starts describing to his disciples that this is what real love is. This is what real leadership is. is somebody that will get down and serve one another. He says, I, I've loved you and now I'm gonna show you the fullest extent of my love because I know who I am and I know where I'm going. And so he loves them, and then he begins this conversation with them where he says, I want you to do the same thing that I have done for you. I want you to serve one another. I want you to love one another. And then he goes on to describe that one of them was going to betray him. And that must have sort of thrown a wrench in the whole conversation because that would have been a very weird thing, that, especially that everybody in that room was his closest friends. They were only the disciples there, and they didn't know all the things that we know. They didn't know that Judas was going to go on to betray him in just a few hours and turn him over unto his death. They didn't know that. And so he says this, and Judas leaves, and, and it's a, it must have been a very unique feeling in the atmosphere. It says uh, that in the middle of John, 7, or, or John 13, it says that they left the upper room, And what he was doing from the Last Supper was that he was, you'll see if you read through John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, he gives these final teachings on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he knew that he would be turned over, arrested, and eventually unto his death. And so we see in John 13 that he's talking about love, he's talking about leadership, he's talking about service, and he's talking about some people that are going to betray him. They leave the upper room and they start walking to the garden and he goes on to talk about, I am the way, the truth, and the life and I'm the only way to the Father and the Holy Spirit is coming and you, though you're gonna face persecution, he promises persecution to them. You're gonna face persecution. In fact, people are gonna hate you because you follow me but fear not because I've overcome the world. He goes on in John 15 to describe that I'm the vine and you're the branches and that you're gonna go through hard times and the gardener's gonna prune you, but stay rooted in me. You're gonna, you're gonna need to stay rooted in me and then you'll be fruitful in this life. And then he goes and he leads him up to John 17, right before he enters the garden, and he says this prayer. If we had time, we would read it all, but the entire chapter of John 17 is just a prayer, the whole chapter. It's his longest recorded prayer. And this is a beautiful thing because we get this sort of intimate view of of Jesus' heart. It's not just his, his corporate teaching to people. It's not just his preaching. But we get to hear his heart in speaking to the Father, speaking a prayer. And so he starts by praying basically for himself and just praising God. 
And then the whole middle section of that chapter is a prayer specifically for the disciples. You would read this. He says, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying specifically for them. God, I've given them your word that you've given me, and I've revealed it to them. They're gonna go on and share this word. And so he says this beautiful prayer for them. And then in verse 20, he turns from praying just for his disciples, and he prays for all of us. And it's a beautiful prayer where he's, he's asking God to give us unity. It's as if he was saying for the last hour to two hours, you're gonna face competition with one another, you're gonna face trial and persecution, you're gonna face people hating you, you're gonna face the temptation to wanna be a superior leader, but I wanna encourage you, no matter what you face, you need to be one. Paul echoes this same thought numerous times in his letters to the churches. He says, whatever happens in Philippians chapter one, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come to see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm as one man walking united for the faith of the gospel. Jesus and Paul knew that unity was what we need. Unity is what you need in your family for health. Unity is what you need in your business for success. Unity is what we need in the church to really be what God wants us to be. Because like Jesus said, a house divided against itself will fall. Now I wanna just, if you'll allow me and, and try and track with me, I wanna, I wanna talk a, a little bit deeper about these four verses in his prayer. Because what I see is that Jesus is making declarations of reality, declarations of desire, and declarations of outcome, and this is very, very important. Now, now let me just illustrate it this way. We do this all the time. Let's just imagine that you are working all day long, 10-hour shift, and you come home from work and you say this declaration of reality. You walk in the front door and you say, Hey family, I have been working really hard all day long and I'm exhausted and I did it all to provide for you because I love you. That's a statement of truth, it's a statement of reality. You could just say period right there. Great, thanks mom, appreciate that you did that. Declaration of reality. But you could add something to that. You could walk in after a long day's work and say, Hey family, I've been working hard all day long to provide for you because I love you and I'm exhausted, period. I would also love it if you could clean up the house and tidy up everything and turn the oven on because we've got a meal to cook, period. That's a declaration of reality. I've been working hard all day and a declaration of desire. I would love it if you would clean the house. You could add one more thing to that. Hey family, I've been working hard all day, working my fingers to the bone because I love you. I would sure love it if you guys would clean the house and tidy up and turn the oven on because we have guests coming over in an hour and I don't want them to think that we're slobs. I want them to think that we're put together. That's a declaration of an outcome. It's three separate things. 
Now, I know that illustration is a little weird, but this is what I mean. Here in these verses, Jesus is making all three of those statements, a declaration of reality, something that has either happened or is going to happen, and that's a truth statement. It's done. He goes on to make declarations of his desire. And it's a beautiful thing to know, to know the desire in the heart of God. It's one thing to know his desire, and it's one thing to walk in his desire. But he goes on to make a declaration of outcome, which is very, very important. And as you and I know, just because you tidy up your house and make it all clean, that doesn't necessarily mean that the guests coming over are gonna think that you're put together and that you're, you, know, you got it all going on. That would just be a desired outcome for us. But when Jesus, the God of the universe, declares that something is gonna happen if something else happens, it's a guarantee. And so this is what I mean. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but I pray for all of those who will believe in me through their word. That's a declaration of reality. Right now, in this moment, I'm praying for everybody. And then he says this, that they might be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they might also be in us. That's a prayer of desire. Father, I desire that they would be in unity. I desire that they would be one, just as I'm in you and you're in me, that they would be in us. And then he says this, listen, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's a declaration of outcome. He goes on to do it again. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. That's reality. That's a statement of truth. He says it's already happened. The glory that you have given to me, Father, I have given to them. It's a declaration of reality. That they might be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they, that they might become perfectly one. That's his desire, that we will be one, that we will be in unity. And then lastly, so that the world would know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. The Greek word that he's using here is hina. It's, it's a specific word that's chosen to denote purpose and intention. Now this is very, very important because what Jesus is praying for here is not just a random desire that he has, though even if it was just his desire, you and I should feel a, a, an immense drive to want to fulfill God's desires because it's God. We should desire to fulfill, fulfill his desires all the time no matter what happens. I got one amen out of that. <laughs> right? We should have a desire not just to legalistically submit to his commandments, but a heart that would say, God, whatever it is that you want, I want it because I know it's good. No matter what happens, no matter what it feels like, no matter if I can't see through the other side of the wall of faith that's in front of me, I know that if you ask me to do something, I want to do it. Even my flesh says you don't want to do it. I want to do it. You know, everything in your flesh is saying no. But does your spirit say, I want to do it no matter what is the outcome because it's your heart? But this particular passage, he tells us not only his desire, but he promises us what the outcome is. And it's my opinion that John 17 is just my opinion, is the most overlooked 
and undervalued passage in the entire scriptures. Because it's just my guess that every single person and hopefully every single church on this planet is primarily working for a few basic things. And if I could just submit this of Heart of the City Church, we exist to help the world know that Jesus is actually God and he came from heaven and that God loves them. Is that not amongst the primary things that we're trying our very best to describe to every human being on this planet? I mean, of all of the things that we do and all the things that we preach, if they don't get that Jesus is God and that God loves them, then we're, we're missing it. And this is the only place, and please, please tell me if I'm wrong. I even asked Dave Carlson, I said, can you find any other place in the entire Bible? Because I really want to know, because I'm going to say this is the only place, and so if I'm wrong, can you correct me? I haven't found anywhere else in the entire scripture where Jesus with his own mouth says, this is the way that the world is going to know that God loves them. It's the only place I've found. He says, they're going to know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. But the world is going to know that I came from the Father and that God loves them even as he loves me when you are one. This is the only place I've found where he says that. And that leads me to ask the question, is our church one? You know, I think in America there's alone. It might be the world. I think there's like 45,000 different denominations. It's, it's pretty crazy. Now, I love Martin Luther, and, and I, obviously we're all here because of the Reformation, and that, that, was, that was good. But what started taking place uh, during the times of the Reformation, if you're unfamiliar with that term, in the 16th century, there was, there was issues in the church And one of the priests said, hey, I'm seeing all these issues within our body, and and I'm just trying to bring this up because we need to make some changes, and we're doing some really weird things like trying to sell people tickets into heaven, and yeah, it's a little weird, right? And they're like, ah, well, and so this thing happened where the church split because they kicked him out. Now, that was in many ways a good thing for us. But one of the negative side effects of what began to take place, it was nobody's intention, but what began to take place around the time of the Reformation is that people like me and you started to define themselves in terms of what they were not instead of primarily in terms of what they were. Does that make sense? So they started to look at one another and say, well, I don't like the way that you baptize people. I'm not like you. So I'm going to start my own denomination. Well, I disagree with you on the gifts of the Spirit, and so I'm different from you. And so you start your own denomination. And people started defining themselves in terms of how they were different from one another, and it started creating their own churches, their own churches, and then it is the spiderweb effect where we have all these thousands of different denominations and people that, that are going to one day end up in heaven together, but they can't get along with each other on earth. It's going to be really awkward one day, you know? Like, like, have you ever thought about that before? Like, you're walking by, like, the crystal sea, hey, John, like, and you, like, were enemies on earth? It's weird. <laughs> Augustine said we should have unity in the essentials liberty in the non-essentials and love above all 
We should be united in what's essential. We should have freedom with one another if it's non-essential. And we should have love above all. Are you walking in unity with your family? Are you walking in unity with your brothers and sisters? Do we have unity in this church? Is there unity in the Big C Church? I love that we're doing things like community worship night on Thursday night, where multiple churches are getting together and saying, hey, we're together, even though you guys are the crazy charismatic church and we're the, you know, whatever. None of that matters when it comes to being together. I love that J.O. is preaching at the altar this morning because he might, he, you know what? I guarantee he preaches different than, than they do over there. But who... Does that stuff really matter that we would be disunified with each other? What are the essentials that we have together? We have to figure this out because Jesus says it's, it's about more than just whether or not your house is going to stand or fall. It's about eternal issues. It's about whether the world is going to know who Jesus is and that God loves them. Can we get beyond our differences and learn to live in unity so this world will know who God is? I was thinking about health and uh, what makes a body healthy. And it was interesting, somewhere along the line, I came across this, this thought that's sort of in contrast to, to this idea of unity, or so it seems. You, you know, your, your body, you probably know this, but your body, the way that you grow and the way that you are healthy is when your cells actually divide. And so, in a sense, strict unity is actually not healthy. It, it would mean that you would just die because division is actually needed for growth. And so I got to thinking about this thought, and uh, if division is needed for healthy growth, then uh, what exactly is death? And it's, it's not that there's division, it's that there's unhealthy division, I always thought growing up that like most diseases, um, cancer was just this disease that you would get you know, from the outside. But as I researched, and probably some of you, especially those that have gone through cancer, you know that cancer is not a bacteria or a virus or something that, that enters you from the outside. It's something that happens at a cellular level from the inside. It's what was presumably a healthy cell gets a few malfunctions or mistypings in the code. Scientists would say that for a cell to become cancerous, typically it takes about five to six malfunctions in the code of the cell to become a cancerous cell. Now get this, what is supposed to happen in your body is that a cell that, that has a little bit of malfunction at the cellular or like DNA level What's supposed to happen is that the cell itself is supposed to identify that there's an issue and shut itself down and kill itself. That's the primary line of defense that our body has against this thing called cancer. And if that doesn't happen, then other positive or healthy cells are supposed to kind of come around that unhealthy cell and shut down the issue before it can divide, multiply, and spread. So those are the two primary ways that our body uh, is supposed to fight 
uh, a cell that is cancerous or just abnormal. That's really what it is, it's abnormal. There's not just one cancer, it's why we're having such a hard time uh, coming up with a cure to cancer because it's not just one disease like many other diseases are, it's not just one thing. Uh, cells in the liver might be different the way that they multiply and are go wrong than in the colon and so on and so forth. And so what happens is that if the cell doesn't recognize its issue right away and put itself to death, and the cells around it don't come and re recognize that there's an issue and suffocate it, then it will begin to multiply. And the thing about cancer cells is that for whatever reason, they multiply quickly, faster than most cells. They like your hair cells, for example, multiply really quickly, and so do cancer cells, other cells in our body. Your, your gut cells multiply quickly, other cells don't multiply so quickly. And so, this is one of the reasons why when you take chemo, uh, you lose your hair because chemotherapy kills a cell in the midst of division. Anyway, I'm probably talking too much about that. But my point is this. I had this thought that cancer, which is, as everybody knows these days, one of the worst threats to our health just culturally and globally moving forward. It's one of the you know, top few killers of our age. It's not something that comes from the outside. It's not a bug that we get from the outside. It's something that starts from within. It's something that was supposed to be a healthy cell. And, and the way that it was supposed to continue to be healthy was to grow and then it was, then it was supposed to divide and multiply in more health. But it grew and divided into more bad cells and more bad cells and more bad cells. And so my question to us is, in the body of Christ, do we have cancer? Do we allow cancer to, to just go crazy in the body of Christ? Do we allow cells that are, that are multiplying and, and separating and, and going against what everything else is doing to, to just grow and flourish? Because if we do, it will take us down, it will kill us. A house divided against itself cannot stand. They say that it's like five or six things that would cause a cell to, to be cancerous. And I just wanna quickly maybe mention a few things that would lead to disunity. Uh, a cell to be healthy has to be the same in essence, the same in purpose, and the same in direction. It has to be a healthy cell in its DNA. Its purpose has to be to bring growth and life, and its direction has to be to divide and multiply in a healthy way. A cancerous cell is the opposite of those things. And so for us, are we the same in our essence? Do we have unity in the essentials? Are we in unity in our purpose, why we exist as people, as individuals, and why we exist as a church? And are we going the same direction? It's not division explicitly that's wrong, it's, it's unhealthy division that is gonna take us down. What we need to do is produce health and multiply and divide and create life in people and then that division becomes actually healthy. And so a few things. The lack of knowledge or lack of desire would be absolutely something that would lead to cancer within our body. Lack of knowledge or lack of desire. Is there something primarily, the very foundational level inside of you that says, I desire to be a brother or a sister with you. Even though we might have these issues, I know 
Jesus' words are that I need to be one with you. I know Jesus' words are if I have an issue with you, it's my responsibility to go straight to you instead of talking to 18 of my friends about you. I should go to you and work out my issues. I know that just because I go to the church down the street with an offense against this one, that does, I know that that does not mean that I'm gonna be a healthy person just because I remove myself from the context of your atmosphere. I have a desire to live with right relationship with every person around me, even if we don't agree, even if we're not gonna be best friends, that's okay, but, but I have a desire to work towards reconciliation because that's what God did for me. And if we don't begin with at least that desire, then we might be on the road towards being cancerous ourselves. Number two, do we have a, a willingness or an unwillingness to get behind a vision? Are we going the same direction? You know, as, a, as just take our church body just as one local congregation, I think that we should work towards being one with the, the universal church, for sure, and we're seeing steps towards that, which is beautiful. But let's just take our church. Are we, are we willing to, to get behind a vision together, even if it's not your vision? Even if it's not your plan for this ministry or my plan of how I would do something, am I willing to surrender my own desire and my own, my own plan to say, what are we doing as a family and how can what we're doing together in unity express God's love to this world? Do we have a willingness to say, I'm willing to get behind a vision that we've agreed upon together? And, it, and, and if we're working against what the vision of the house is collectively, then we might, even though what we're trying to do is not bad, it might be a good thing, it might be somewhat negative in the sense that we need to be, we need to be moving a general direction together, not going a million different directions. Number three, if we have offenses or unforgiveness in our heart, that's cancer. I know people in this church that sit on opposite sides of the sanctuary as one another. Because there's an offense. I, I, I heard about it just this week. Somebody came up to me and said, hey, uh, somebody in my small group was just openly talking about an offense that they have against somebody else in our church. And here's the thing. We all get offended and we all get hurt. We've all been there. I've been there but we have a responsibility to go to that person one-on-one -on -one and try and work through those offenses. And if, and if that doesn't work, then we take, we take somebody along with us. We don't take an army with us. We take somebody along with us. And we say, hey, through a mediator, can we figure out how to at least reconcile to the degree that we're on the same team? We might not, again, be best friends. We might not, you know, do dinner together, but we're in the same church family. If you think that your offense or unforgiveness against somebody else in this church or any other is just okay, you're wrong. It's not okay. It will kill you and it will kill us. It's cancer. Number four, gossip. <laughs> you know, Christians are really good at like candy coating what gossip is. Like, come on, sister, we gotta pray for Bobby. He's really struggling with, and then I'll mention all of it, the gossip about him. <laughs> I've been there, I've been there. 
I'm not, I'm no better than you. I'm just saying, don't we do that? It's pretty ugly. People can see it. And when the world sees it, they're like, oh, this is the type of community that you're talking about that Jesus says you'll love one another and you talk about one another. Here's a good rule of thumb. If the person that you're talking to has nothing to do with the situation, it's probably gossip. If the person that you're talking to is not gonna give you godly, wise counsel for, this is really the rule of thumb. The only reason that you should ever talk to anybody about somebody else is if you're truly, genuinely in your heart needing godly counsel so you would know how to go that person and talk to them. Other than that, there's no reason to talk to somebody else. Unless maybe it's a dear, close friend or a spouse that like we just need to sometimes get it off our chest. But you know what? You could leave the person's name out of it and it would, it would be a whole lot different conversation. You ever notice that when you say somebody's name, you could tell that your motive is a little bit different than when you don't? Oh, Bobby was such a blah, 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 and oh yeah, I need your help. How do I talk to him because he's such a jerk to me? When you could just say, hey, hey babe, somebody at work is bothering me, and it, with this issue and this issue and this issue, because then it becomes about the issues, not the person. She don't know who the person is. She don't know if it's Bobby or you. I'm struggling with this issue and this issue and this issue. Can you help me figure out how to, how to navigate that conversation with, with whoever that person might be? You don't know. She can give me godly counsel without being biased based on who the person is. We should stop using each other's names because we're just throwing each other under the bus and it's cancer. I'm not saying that you, you should never talk to anybody else, anybody else about what's going on in your issue. We have to talk to people. But we have to learn to do it in a healthy way. Where's Seth? Can I get Seth up here? Dissension, just this uh, intentional desire to bring separation. You know, sometimes like we're looking, we're looking to critique one another. We're looking to. Um, compare against what somebody else is doing and, and come against. And uh, I think that our job is to be, to, be, to be builders. Sometimes in order to build, you have to, you have to tear something down. So I get that. Um, I get that some things, some things aren't done right all the time. Uh, as leaders of the church, pastors, we are far from perfect. We understand that. We understand that this ministry or that ministry could probably be done 10 degrees better or, you know. There's, a, there's many, many things. We're trying to do the best we can. I know that you're trying to do the best you can. Uh, the problem is when we come at each other and all we do is from afar tear down what somebody else is doing, we're not really being part of building something or just being part of the demolition team. But somebody that's truly interested in building God's kingdom and building up other people and loving them would say, hey, I might be bringing a critique against you, but it's only to make your building stronger, not in order to rip it down to rubble. And so sometimes it's true. And not, we're not saying that everything, I'm not saying that everything is perfect and so you should never tear something off the building. Sometimes you have to tear things off. Sometimes you have to bring it down to a foundation. But are you in the game? Are you on the team that's there ready to build it back up again? There's a difference between somebody that critiques from the stands and somebody who's on the field playing the game. 
Uh, a pastor said it like this, if you have blood on your hands, I'm gonna listen to your voice a lot louder. If you're in the battle fighting alongside me and you're getting dirty in the battle, I'm gonna listen to what you have to say because I know that you're working with me to build this thing and to fight this war and to win this battle together. And so I just wanna encourage you that anything in life, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your family, whether it's in your business, that if you're gonna bring a critique against something, that you would also be part of the team that would rebuild it. You'd be part of the solution. Because when we just critique from afar and throw stones at people, we're being cancer. We're just tearing down. We're creating disunity. We're creating unhealthy division.